Okay, good evening, everybody. It is, um, it is a time that I can't read on my watch. It is one minute till, less than one minute till. Um, so as we're waiting for the last couple of folks and, uh, and before we go live online at seven o'clock, uh, a commercial. Um, I was in, in getting ready for uh, class tonight. I realized, oh, what's that really mean? And where's that from? And, and I remembered I have this great one volume dictionary, Bible dictionary uh, that was put out about 25 years ago. It is still the best. Um, one volume dictionary of the Bible you can find. It's great. If you are, who, somebody, Sherry was asking about Zophar. Uh, Zophar's back, I'm, I didn't even look, but I'm pretty sure he's back here in the back. Um, if you run into a word in your Bible study or you're having a conversation with somebody and they say, well, you know, the Bible says, yeah, you can actually look up what that word means or, or what that thing is. It's just, it's the Harper Collins Bible Dictionary. Paul Actemeyer um, is the general editor. He's uh, a brilliant scholar and well-known. So if you're looking for something as a companion, that's, another, that's a great book to have. Um, second, you remember we had uh, Rob Bell's books out last week and Adam Hamilton's books, uh, copies of their books available for you. I got a note from uh, Chris, Chris, uh, Christy Kane today that the order has not come in yet and so those aren't here tonight. We'll have those for you next week for those of you who um, may want to pick up one of those books. Uh, Adam's is titled um, uh, Making Sense of the Bible and um, uh, Rob Bell's is titled, what, what is the Bible? And they're both really excellent resources. Two very different style writers. If you've ever heard uh, Rob Bell preach or Adam Hamilton preach, you'll know they're two very different styles of, of preaching, but both of them um, very good in their own right. All right, so I think we're time to start. I want to say hello to everyone who's online. Uh, thank you last week for watching. It was great that you tuned in to watch. We had over 400 views. I think it's around 500 now. And uh, we just did that at the last minute. We're glad that you were able to join us. So welcome to all of you. Bring it, pull out your Bibles and um, join with us as we get into this study. Okay, we're going to get right into it. We're um, uh, talking about heaven and hell. And, and we've got a series of slides uh, with, the, with the scriptures up there. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the, scripture, to the, to the different um, texts as we talk about them. Um, but we've also got some slides that our uh, communication staff put together. And there we go, Psalm 49, uh, 10 through 11, okay? So we're getting right into it. I'm going to try to save some time for Q&A at the end when we get down towards, towards the end. When we look at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Hang on, just leave it there for a second, Stuart. Um, at this point, the, this, this psalmist, this poet, and by the way, do you understand when I say that, when I, when I describe the psalmist as a poet? Um, they essentially are theological poets, and they're not um, all written by one person. Uh, tradition, traditional theology and theologians oftentimes ascribe many of the Psalms to, to King David. Um, there's absolutely zero evidence in the texts for that. You might, your Bible might say a Psalm of David. That's a secondary edition, just so you know that. Um, there are some Psalms, like Psalm 51, uh, which is, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your uh, Holy Spirit from me, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and create in me a clean heart, O God. Um, some people think that was written by David after his, uh, after being caught in his encounter with Bathsheba. Um, I love that idea, but there's no evidence for it whatsoever that that's, that, that is actually what happened. So when we, when you encounter the Psalms, we're encountering how many different authors? No one really knows for sure. Some of them were written maybe 500 years before Jesus, some of them maybe 700, some even older than that, but it's probably around 500 years before Jesus when the final collection is, is put together. So when you're, reading, when you're reading the book of Psalms, realize you've got, you've got different authors with different points of view in this large collection. It'd be like a, like an antho I have an anthology of poetry in my, in my office or at home somewhere, and it's, it's several dozen different poets from across the last two or three hundred years. Um, obviously, they write in different voices and different styles. That's what we have in the book of Psalms. So this particular poet is basically saying what the book of Ecclesiastes says. You, you live, you die, and that's it. And there are some people who think, um, oh, I can, I can hold on to my money, I can keep everything that I have, and, and life's going to be great. It, this reminds me of a, of a um, or death is going to be great. This reminds me of an old joke. Um, a man has, a, it's not really a joke, it's more of a, a, a wise saying. We'll see if that's true or not. A man has died, his family all gathers for the reading of the will, and there's a couple of cousins on the back who are kind of hoping they got into the will, you know, and they're there with the rest of the family members, and one of the cousins says to the other 
cousin, how much do you think he left? And the other cousin says, I'm pretty sure he left all of it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you get, you get the joke. You get, you get, the, you get the idea. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't take it with you. You know, I mean, that, remember there was a bumper sticker. It was real popular back in the 80s. Uh, the one with the most toys wins. Um, the one, you know, then I saw another one that came out a few years after that said the one with the most toys is still dead. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's basically what this, this poet is saying here. Go to the next verse. <clears throat> their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they named lands their own. Essentially making the same point as the earlier verse. By the way, there's a lot of Hebrew poetry that does that. You'll run into, here's the same point and the second point said in the same, the same point being made just with the, with the different, different words. Um, their graves are their homes forever. Uh, there was a view within Judaism. Now, when I say this, I don't mean all Jews thought this in antiquity, okay? Because just like in our day, and you can find Christians who think uh, same-gender marriage is totally fine, and Christians who think same-gender marriage is, is totally wrong, and everything kind of in between on that particular issue. In, in 500 years before Jesus, in Judaism, there were a variety of views and view, viewpoints. That's reflected in the book of Psalms itself. So when I say that there was a viewpoint within Judaism, I'm not making a universal statement, all right? Um, their graves are their homes. There was a viewpoint in Judaism that understood that death was it. Your grave is your home. That's, your, that's the end for you. Your life that you lived, hopefully you lived a long life and a wonderful life and you were kind and loving and caring. And what lives on then is your legacy of your life. How kind, how gracious, how wonderful were you? Now, that, again, I want to be clear, that wasn't the only view. This, that wasn't this simplistic, uh, that's it, that's the way it goes, that's what everybody who's within our faith uh, believes. In fact, in Jesus' day, um, there, were, there were four different groups. We, we hear a lot about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When I was in Sunday school, uh, we learned that Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They thought there was no resurrection. The Sadducees would put their names next to this verse. Your grave is your home. That's the end. The life you live now is all you got. You better live it well so that your legacy lives on beyond you. Okay? That's what Sadducees. The Pharisees tended to believe, more or less, that there was an afterlife, that there was a resurrection, and, and the way your life lived now mattered because that might be used to determine whether or not you will, uh, would be in a place of, of celebration and new life, or you'd be in a place of punishment and, and, and um, uh, hotness, uh, as, as it were. Well, here's, and here's the way we memorized that uh, when I was in Sunday school. The Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. That's why they were sad, you see. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the Pharisees believed in heaven, that's, so therefore they were fair, I see. Okay, yeah, that's a terrible joke, but um, now, now, you know what I, now you know what I do. So I start off with this one just to, just to and I hope you read the whole psalm, but this is kind of a summary of that theological idea that, you know, and, and do you know people who think that way today? I, I mean, I do. I, I, I'm related to some of them. Um, there's plenty of folks out there who think, you know, hey, this life is the life you've got, and what a gift it is, and it's marvelous, and it's amazing, and that's not freedom to do whatever you want, but uh, they would say, it still matters the way you live, and we're called to be loving, and kind, and gracious, and, and all of that, etc., but then they would say, um, you know, but when you're, when you're dead, you're dead, and, and what lives on is whatever legacy you've, you've left. All right, let's go to the next one, uh, Psalm 49, 14 to 15. <clears throat> still, still within the same psalm, here's this idea, like sheep they're appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, straight to the grave they descend, and their form shall waste away, Sheol shall be their home. Um, Sheol was uh, a Hebrew word that literally did mean uh, the place of death, the place for the dead. Sometimes it meant the netherworld or it was the underworld for departed spirits within the context of the psalm we just read. What Sheol really means is when you're dead, you're dead. And there, was, there, there might have been, and this is a little bit more of a nuance here on this idea. There might have been this idea. In fact, we run into it um, uh, later in Job 26.5. We'll run into the word, the reference to shades, uh, ghosts, shadowy figure, figures. There, there were some people who understood that Sheol was the place of death and it was a place of just overwhelming sadness. And that you, when you died, you'd find yourself in Sheol and you just sort of would be 
sad that you were no longer alive, alive and you'd, you'd feel terrible that, that maybe there was something you did when you were 12 and you stole a candy bar from um, the grocery store. If you're, oh, I was eight when I did that. Um, or, or something you did in your uh, young adulthood or maybe even a regret that you have about your family and you didn't love your family, whatever. And those sorts of things are just there, just sort of in this, what's the right way to say it? Just sort of this really uh, uh, almost dreamlike state. Have you, have you ever had a dream and you, you knew you were dreaming? Have you ever had a dream like that? And there's been a couple of times when I've had dreams in the last few weeks even where I'm having the dream and there's a part of my brain going, this is a really weird dream. Um, you're going to be fine when you wake up. Don't worry so much. Um, and then I wake up and I think, oh, I can't remember the dream, but I remember feeling weird about it. Um, in antiquity, that kind of idea was there around death, that you really wouldn't quite be all that aware. You would just be this, this shadow, of, your, the shadow of, your, of yourself. So death is the place for sorrow, for sadness, for regret. <clears throat> all right, now let's go on to Psalm uh, 88. We get a slightly different view here. <clears throat> but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for God will receive me. Now, do you, do you hear the difference here? So now, now God is rescuing this one, Psalm 88, 40 chapters later, 40 psalms later, rescuing the one from Sheol, uh, from weakness and death. Um, other, other words that appear in Psalm 88 are weakness, death, trouble, Sheol, pit, forsaken, slain, and cut out. The idea is that, that whatever this person has experienced that feels like death, God will somehow rescue. And so there's Again, it's not a direct statement of eternal life, but you can draw a, an, an inference or an implication that there's an implication that eventually um, God will come to Sheol, to that place of death, that shadowy place, and pull you out of it. Now, if, you're, if you got your Bible handy, I got one for you um, that's not in my, in my slides. Let me have you turn to Psalm 139. This is on my top 10 list. I always say, oh, this is one of my most favorite verses. I have about a thousand of those, but <clears throat> this truly is one of my top 10s. Psalm 139. <clears throat> start at verse 7 with me. You find it? Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven? Ah, interesting idea. Heaven. Heaven, not something necessarily found in the Old Testament very often. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in where? Sheol. Do you have somebody else have something different there? Say again? Depths. Oh, interesting. Depths, what else? Where? Debt? Like dead. Oh, dead. Oh, okay, all right. Anything else? Say again? Hell. Hell. It says, your Bible says Hell. Interesting. Is that King James? King James misinterpreted it there. That's part of the problem. But, but, here's what's fascinating. According to Psalm 139, God is everywhere. God is in heaven. I'm going to say more about heaven in a little bit when we get there and where that is. And God is in Sheol, in the place of the dead. Now we have an entirely different perspective from Psalm 49 that God's presence can be found in either of these places and everywhere in between. Now, later in the, in the poetry, uh, it says, If I take the wings of the morning and set out the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, there your right hand shall hold me fast. Verse 11, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So the, the, the primary thing I wanted you to see there, uh, darkness, by the way, in antiquity would have been considered a, a dangerous uh, time when evil spirits were out and about and, and all, all that sort of thing. So the promise of Psalm 139 is that uh, no matter what we think about all these uh, places where death and dying and sorrow and sadness, etc., might be, even there God is found. That's a, that's a new twist on, on, on this. Okay, I'm going to take a breath there for just a second. Um, do, you see, do you see how much nuance there already is in the Bible? It's really impossible to say the Bible says X about hell or the Bible says Y about heaven. 
there's, there's a variety of viewpoints and understandings, and it's, it's almost like, um, especially when the Psalms are being collected, it's almost, it's almost uh, as some of you are editors, uh, uh, you know, it's almost like these guys are sitting around with all these pieces of poetry and all this work that everybody knows, and that's a good one, and that's a good one. And I, I love that there's even sometimes when it feels like the psalmists are arguing with each other, because sometimes you're in different places, right? If, if you've experienced the loss of a child, I spoke to someone uh, last night who, who suffered the loss of a child, um, whose child died. Uh, have you ever heard this before? You know, we have a word for um, someone who's uh, lost a parent. What do we call that child? An orphan. We have a word for someone who's lost a spouse. Uh, if, if it's, if it's a, a man, he's a widower. If it's a woman, she's a... What do we call a parent who's lost a child? We don't, we don't have a name. You know, we don't, we don't have a name. Um, uh, that, that sort of thinking and, and thought is reflected throughout the book of Psalms. There's all these different viewpoints and ideas and thoughts that are, that are there, and it's, and it's, it's amazing. Um, oh, by the way, in Psalm 88, are we still in Psalm 88? Can we put that one back up there? Put verse 11 up, Stuart. Can you go to verse, oh, where do we go? I'm sorry, 88, 11. Yep, oh, you had it there a second ago. <clears throat> Maybe it's not on my, yeah, their graves are their homes forever. Uh, that's, that's the early one, that's, that's fine. What I wanted to say was, in Psalm 88, there are six questions asked about the dead. Do the dead do this? Do the dead do this? Do the dead, do the dead get this? And over and over and over again, the, the psalmist says no, no, and no. All right, now let's go to Job 26, 5, which should be a slide coming up, up there. The shades below tremble the waters and their inhabitants. Um, what is, there it is. What is a shade, what does that remind you of? Anybody, just call it out. What do you think a shade might be? Somebody say ghost? Yeah, ghost. If you, does anybody have a translation? Raise your hand if anybody has a translation that says ghost. Departed spirits. Departed spirits, shades, ghosts, anything else? The dead, something else? Anything else? Yeah, that, those, are, those are all ideas. And again, I mentioned it earlier, the, this idea of the shades is that when you die, you become this sort of shadow of yourself. Um, don't read into that the Greek concept of the soul. That's, this is not, this is not um, Western theology coming to play here. This is not Greek philosophical thought when we think of shade or ghost or, or spirit or any of that. The idea of the soul is something that comes out of, out of uh, Greek philosophical thinking and it permeates uh, the United States of America. I said in a sermon about 20, how long ago were we in, um, in Atlanta? I don't know, 25 years ago. I said in a sermon once that, that you know, there's this idea of the soul does not exist in the Old Testament and, and the Apostle Paul actually uh, doesn't even talk about the soul. Apostle Paul talks more about the bodily resurrection and 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the bodily resurrection and, and we're all going to participate in that and this idea that your soul goes to heaven and your body wastes away is not in Paul's thought. It's not the whole, I got letters and this is before email. Thank God it was before email. I got a lot of emails and, and, and things. Um, and it was, it was fascinating to me in, in this group of folks that were, were concerned because what they were reflecting on was not biblical theology as much as it was Greek philo philosophical thought and how that has sort of worked its way into our theological understanding. So especially here, you can, by the way, you can argue for the idea of the soul throughout the Bible. That's a, that, that is in there. Um, my statement 25 years ago was too broad. Um, but right here, uh, what Job is saying is that the, the, the shades, you know, when you die, you just sort of become this this pale glimmer of what you used to be. And, and have anybody seen a ghost movie ever before? You know, a, a lot of times, I, I remember Poltergeist. I showed Poltergeist once to my youth group back in the 80s. I got in trouble for doing that. Um, it was a great movie. I didn't care. It was a great movie. Um, uh, you know, and if, if you remember towards the end when they're all, what, what they fight, they bring in the, the, the little short gal who's the, um, I forget what she was, but she's helping them clean the house of all the ghosts. Tell me you've seen the movie, would you? Tell me, yeah, that, that explains the rest of it looks like. We have no idea what he's talking about. Anyway, all these ghosts are there and they're sad because their graves have been ripped up and all this stuff has happened. And so the idea is that there, there's this sadness among these ghosts who can't move on into whatever's next. That's actually fairly consistent with not the overall view, but a pretty strong view in the Old Testament. The, the shades are, are sad and filled with sorrow and, and so on. All right. What is that word, Abaddon? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Abaddon. Thank you. 
Yes, I meant to point that out. It's right here in my notes. It's a, first of all, it can be a synonym for Sheol, all right? It can also be the name of somebody who guards the place of the dead. So Abaddon would be a character, a person. So it's both, kind of like Hades. Hades is both the place of the dead and it's the name of the, of the God who oversees, uh, right? So Abaddon is, um, it's a synonym for Sheol, a place of the dead, and also is the person who's the ruler of, of that place. Thank you. I, I was right there in my notes and we skipped right over it. All right, now, Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Um, uh, the word there for unquenchable fire, is it up there on the, on the board? Yeah. Is the word Gehenna. Gehenna well, five or, well, a thousand years before, Je maybe more than that, 1,500 years before Jesus, um, was thought to be the place where child sacrifice occurred. That in, in ancient, ancient times, the, the, the Gehenna area, which would have been right outside of Jerusalem, is where child sacrifices occurred. Gehenna, some people also think, and I'm one of those, is a place where uh, the trash was dumped. In antiquity, um, did you get the bulldozer out and bury the trash? What did you do? How'd you get rid of it? You burn it. When we were in Mexico two weeks ago, I was up on this be beautiful site. It was unbelievably beautiful where we were building homes for these folks. Dirt roads and, and no power, electricity or water, of course, but absolutely gorgeous um, area. Um, we're looking out over, over the, uh, uh, the valley, the hills in the distance, and all of a sudden that little, that acrid, is that, right? is that the right word? That acrid smell of trash burning? I mean, if you've ever smelled it, it's just disgusting and it, it's, it's just it's just pitiful. Um, and everyone in our group who was building on that particular site commented on how disgusting it was. That's Gehenna. That's what Jesus is referencing here in Mark chapter 9. He's referencing that place just outside the wall where the trash is being burnt. And he's essentially using hyperbole to make the very strong point of if you cause some little one, an immature person, a child, somebody who's not strong in their faith, if you cause them to stumble or sin or fall, you, you need to be thrown into the unquenchable fire. That's the reference. It's not about who gets sent to hell when you die. We're going to look at a couple more references from Jesus here to make a, to make a similar, similar point. I, I even wonder, and this is just a theological wonder on my part, but I've even wondered if the place of the skull, Gol Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, if that wasn't in Gehenna, if that didn't occur where the trash was being burnt. I mean, think of it. Here, here's the way crucifixions work. If I'm crucified, Julie, Julie would be there because she's brave. My boys might not be there, but Julie and our two boys are in danger. Why? Because I'm an enemy of the state. I mean, let's be really clear. Jesus was crucified by the Roman government. I hear people get really confused about this all the time. Who crucified Jesus? The Romans crucified Jesus. Nobody did crucifixions unless the Romans ordered them. Pilate ordered the crucifixion. Um, that's a historical, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, fact. If I'm killed by the state, Julie and my boys are in danger because I'm an enemy of the state. And if they see them doing anything that's remotely connected to me and the, why, and the reason why I was killed, they'll probably be killed next, probably crucified in the same way. So most of the time when someone's being crucified, there's nobody there picking up the body, which that's another aside here, by the way. The fact that the women who are following Jesus are there at the cross and they're the ones who helped to carry the body along with Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus and, and all, all these folks are some of the most courageous persons in the Bible in that the fact that they're there in the place of death carrying their friend who's killed as, a, as an enemy of the state. Um, but most of the time, what happens? Person dies. By the way, Jesus' death was like that compared to most crucifixions. Um, it was very fast. Sometimes people lingered on for days and days. Birds would come and pick at the body before it was dead, and it was just a horrific way to die. Most of the time, they chop off the cross at the bottom and just throw it into the fire. That's, that's a theory I've heard other places. It's one that I kind of ascribe to. Just toss them off. Now, now do you get the image of hell that, that people would think of? What a hellish way, an embarrassing way, a horrific way 
for the end of your life to occur. It's not about eternal punishment. It's Jesus making this hyperbolic point about if you're causing somebody out, then you might as well just be thrown in with the trash and, and burnt up. I hope I'm making that, that point pretty, pretty clear. Um, <clears throat> by the way, if you read through the rest of, uh, read the whole in context, Mark 9, 42 through 48, um, this is one of those questions that I use for my friends who take the Bible literally. If you take the Bible literally, so I, I, was, I was literally having this conversation with somebody in the airport, uh, I don't know, six months ago, and, and God bless these people who come up to me in the airport and ask me if I follow Jesus. I always say yes. And, and, then, and then I ask them, well, what does that mean to you? And boy, that has become fun. Um, I should just put up a sign that says, don't ask. Uh, <laughs> Um, anyway, I, I, in the conversation, we got to go into some stuff. We started talking about heaven and hell, who's going to go to heaven and all, all that sort of thing. And, and I was saying, uh, you know, God's love is pervasive and, you know, love wins in the end, all, all that. And he was just kind of really getting upset. And I said, do you take the Bible literally? He said, yes, I, I do. Well, let's turn to Mark, Mark chapter 9. Um, I read through that text, uh, the, the whole thing about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin or gouging your eye out if it causes you to, to sin. I said to him, have you ever committed a sin? He said, well, of course I have. Why do you have both hands? He said, well, that's metaphorical. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's arrogant, rude, and obnoxious on my part. But, you know, I fully admit that some parts of the Bible I take literally. I believe it literally is true. And other parts I take as metaphor because they are metaphor. And so when it's metaphorical, of course we do. But you can't kind of, you can't say I take it literally, all of it. And, and come out to that conclusion of, therefore, because if you take that literally, then you have to have lost at least one hand and should have gouged out at least one, one eye. Um, in all seriousness, there... Truth is still... Yeah, yes, um, the uh, uh, boss at my house is reminding me <laughs> that metaphor doesn't mean it's not true. It's not, it's not true. It's always, in fact, um, in my sermon on Sunday, I mentioned the story of Adam and Eve. I said, it's not based on history but it is based on truth. I hope you get that kind of nuance. Um, Adam and Eve are not historical characters per se. The story itself, though, is based, on, is based on truth. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Matthew 16, 18, I think is what you have next. Is that right? Yes. And I tell you, you are Peter. Is it up there? And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. All right, we've heard about Sheol. Sheol um, is often, when, you, when the, you read in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Sheol oftentimes is translated as Hades. Somebody had um, a King James Version that translated it as hell. Um, uh, that, that's an, a common uh, misunderstanding. Um, Hades could also be, uh, this is where it's related to Abaddon, the name of the person who oversees the place of the dead, the lord of the underworld. And it can also be the name of the underworld. Oftentimes it was considered to be a watery abyss. Uh, uh, this deep, deep, bottomless pit where water was. Um, shades were often found in Hades. Again, that reflection of sadness and sorrow. Now, one thing to see here. So, Hades is that place of, of, of the watery depth. There were, I skipped over another note that I had earlier about, about water. Oh, that was in Job. Back in Job. Job mentions waters in connection with, with shades. Here's um, Jesus with this uh, idea that we will, with, with Peter, that uh, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's a theory that somewhere in northern Galilee, there was this cave, and this cave was called the gate of Hades, and there, it had this, there was water way down in the bottom, and no one had ever swept, no one knew how deep it was. Water in antiquity was considered a dangerous thing. A very dangerous thing. The sea was, cons you know, I mean, think about that. There's no submarines. There's nobody with, with diving masks going under the water and looking around. Everything is vague and strange and weird. And there's monsters and large fish and, and whales and, and all of that. So when you ever, oftentimes when you encounter images of the sea or water um, or a lake or whatever, it's often connected with turmoil, evil, fear, worry, and, and more. And so the same thing is connected here with, with the idea of Hades in, in Matthew 16, 18. Theologically, the beautiful thing about this is Jesus is saying, even that's not strong enough against what we're going to do. And, and, and you could stretch then the metaphor a little bit, if Julie will let me. Um, you can stretch it just a, just a little bit and say, um, uh, 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 
uh, now I lost my, my train of thought. Um, you can stretch the metaphor a little bit and say even hell itself won't stand against won't stand against what Jesus is trying to do. And then let the metaphor of hell as a place of punishment or whatever exist because that still makes the same theological point. Essentially is that um, in the New Testament, um, it will, it will uh, the New Testament point of view, especially in Matthew here, is that Jesus is stronger um, than death. That Jesus is stronger than, than Hades or by connection Sheol or, or anything else. Okay, a, a one that's not in your text, you don't need to turn to it if you don't want to. I mean, it's not on the list here, but another text, Revelation 1.18. Um, uh, John, and by the way, John who wrote the book of Revelation is not the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, nor is it the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those are probably three different Johns, just so you know. Um, if you want to come to that class, that's going to be in 2021. Um, uh, um, but in Revelation 1.18, this John writes that Christ has the keys to Hades. So, so again, the, the, um, the view of the New Testament is that there's nothing stronger than Jesus and uh, slash God's, uh, actually I should say Christ, Christ slash God's love, not even Hades, not even Sheol, not even Gehenna, not even any of those places are stronger than what, than what, what uh, God's love through, seen through Christ can, can do in the world. That's a huge and, and extremely powerful point um, in, the, in the biblical records. Uh, um, and again, it's, it's uh, poetic imagery. All right, next slide should be Matthew 25, 46. Oops, where'd my Bible go? Now I want to get this, this for you in context. So if you would, uh, go ahead and flip your Bibles to Matthew 25. Uh, my dad uh, still has preached the greatest sermon I've ever heard on Matthew 25. He had, he had quite a few great sermons, but his sermon on Matthew 25 was, was unbelievable. I, I never I'll never forget uh, being in, I uh, went to a little church college in Eugene, Oregon called Northwest Christian College. It's where Julie and I went to school. And, and we had, my dad had been invited up to speak in chapel. And so uh, I thought I should go to chapel that day. I'd, I was pretty good at skipping. Uh, I'll tell you someday how I could skip chapel and still get my attendance recorded as though I was there. That's another, that's another confession for another time. Anyway, my dad was there, so I went to chapel. Uh, you know, 350 students in this chapel crammed in there. And my dad just, he went about 20 minutes long. And there wasn't a single person, even the faculty, that didn't leave early. So I got, I got to my next class late, and, it, and, and Sharon Warner, the, who was Professor Warner, one of my education professors, she, I remember her saying, I know that's a lot to absorb, and you're probably still spinning around, but we do have work to do in this class. My, my dad was passionate about this text that I'm going to read for you, or excerpts of it, um, because he'd, he'd really seen in his ministry and really started to take, even though I've, I've talked about some of my dad's own personal issues, but he really started to take Jesus seriously on how much Jesus talked about caring for the poor. And if you, if you go back and read through Jesus' teachings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just go in and circle every time Jesus talks about dealing with the poor and helping the poor and feeding the hungry and, and, and the rest and the weak and, and those in the margins of society, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not only in his teachings, but the way he acted and lived constantly. It's quite clear that Jesus was overwhelmingly concerned for the poor. Go back and read um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, uh, Micah, um, those 8th century prophets, all over and over and over and over and over and over again, constantly worried about how, whether the poor are being taken care of, constantly, constantly, constantly. <clears throat> um, in fact, Ezekiel says, we'll look at this when we get to the last week of class, but Ezekiel says, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Do you know what he says? Anybody know? Lack of hospitality. They failed to care for the widow and the orphan, the poorest of the poor, the margins of society. Not a single word about sexual sin. Not a single word about any of that stuff. That's Ezekiel. It's in your Bibles. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But I'm pointing that out because I want us, I want us to see how strong Jesus is here and how he uses the metaphor of hell, or rather I should say eternal punishment, uh, to make his point. Verse 31, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. The king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father. 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Now, stop there for just a second. Put politics aside. What's that, what's that word say to the church? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, love your neighbor. And, and if he or she is poor and, and needs food, we sure as heck better find some food for them. And we can argue about in our state and our government how we might do that, but the teaching for people who are followers of Jesus is unequivocally clear. All right, sorry. Um, I'm starting to preach a little bit there. Uh, so back, I'm at, at verse uh, 37. Then the righteous will answer Jesus, Lord... When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited and the king will answer them, truly, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So note this, the people who are doing this, they aren't doing it in order to be considered righteous. They're doing it because it's right. They're not doing it because, oh, he might be Jesus. I should give him some food. They're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. Then he'll say to those on his left hand. Um, Left-handed people are fine, by the way. Uh, then he'll say to those on his left hand. You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and gave me no food. I was thirsty and gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take of you, care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, again, an interesting conversation for our friends who take the Bible literally. <clears throat> the people who are going to heaven are who? The one who took care of the poor, the naked, the hungry, the, the prison, etc. All those folks. They're going to heaven. Um, they're going to heaven because they, they were trying to earn their way in, because they believed that Jesus is their, is, their, is their Lord and Savior, and they give him their whole heart and soul. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord and Savior. Uh, There's a little confession I had to say when I was growing up. That's the people who get to go to heaven. Is that in there? No. They don't even know they're going to heaven. They're not even thinking about going to heaven. Jesus says, you're the ones who are going to heaven. And who's going to hell? The people who didn't do that. Now, if we're going to take the Bible literally, by the way, which we're not, but if we're going to take it literally, that ought to scare the out of you. Julie and I were uh, with friends in, in New Orleans a few years ago. Our friends Gary and Susan, we just met them down in Louisville a couple of months or a couple of weeks ago. From friends of ours from Atlanta, and and we, Julie and I, had never been to to to, to uh, um, New Orleans before. Um, and I, if you've ever been there, it's like just blindfold yourself, throw a rock in any direction, and then follow that rock and eat wherever it lands because it's going to be a great restaurant. I mean, it's just like every meal we ate was, um, it was and then four thousand calories per meal too. It was just, it was just awesome. Um, I'd never, stupid Glenn says, hey, we've never been, what is Bourbon Street? What's the deal with Bourbon Street? You got to watch, and they're both, Gary and Susan said, you don't want to watch, it's no, don't do that. And so, you know, we get about a hundred, I said, no, let's do it. I just want to see what it's like. So we get about a hundred feet onto it and Julie's holding my hand. She's going, you're such a dork. This is so stupid. Why are we here? And it was, it's pretty gross. But there's this group of people in the middle of Bourbon Street. Have you seen these guys with bullhorns and you're going to fry in hell signs and all this stuff? And they're just, they're just, they're just screaming out over, which is like, I, I'm not sure how, why they think that methodology works, but they're doing it. So I walk up to this guy and, and I, I just said, um, tell me, theologically, um, if I'm a person who gets engaged in some of the activities we see here, I'm going to go to hell. Is that what you're preaching? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This guy's maybe 25 years old. I said, what about Matthew 25? And he said, I don't know that text. I smiled. <laughs> and I, and I, in all seriousness, I said, you know, it says in Matthew 25 that if we feed the hungry and we clothe the naked and we visit the imprisoned and we do all that, we'll find our way into eternal life. And if we don't do that, we're going to burn forever. Have you read that? I mean, his eyes are like this big. And he said, I haven't. I said, just so you know, I don't take that word literally, but I take Jesus 
at the heart of what I think he's saying, which is what matters the most, is that you and I are to care for our friends and neighbors who are in need. And that's what really matters ultimately. And, and he said, I promise you, I'm gonna read that later tonight. Now, I, obviously I didn't, I didn't, of course, by this time, Julie and Gary and Susan are long gone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I think it took me an hour to find them. You know, they were somewhere just hunkered down going, is that Glenn coming in? Yeah, let's, let's, let's leave now. But, but you see the point I'm, I'm making? It, 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 Jesus is not determining who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. It's kind of like this. One time we were, we, well, we never took a vacation in my family. Vacation in my family was when my dad got a new church and we'd moved to a new church. And in the driving from one place to the next, that was our vacation. Um, but I remember one time driving from uh, somewhere in, in, in Southern California to somewhere else in Southern California, a couple hours away. Kids in the backseat were behaving obnoxiously. My, ga- my dad turned around and said, if you guys don't cut that out, I'm going to tie you to the roof of the car and we'll leave you there the rest of the trip. I'm pretty sure my dad was just making an uh, exaggerated point. I, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> right, have you ever done anything like that? You know, I've told you, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, right? Have you ever said something like that? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's hyperbolic preaching. It's really good preaching. He's got their attention. It's not about heaven and hell and who gets to go. Unless we want to make it, take it literally, uh, boy, I'm signing up to volunteer heart to heart tomorrow. Um, but we should do that regardless of whether or not it's connected to who goes to heaven, etc. All right. Uh, now we get to some fun stuff. Isaiah 65, 17 is not, um, I don't, or is it? Yeah, it is. That's, that should be the next one. For I'm about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now I put that one up there and then I forgot to give Stuart the slide that's the next one. But So leave that up there, Stuart. Revelation 21 says... Does anybody know off the top of your head? If you've been to one of my funerals, you've probably heard it because it's one of my favorite texts, especially for a funeral. <clears throat> in, the end, in the end, God will set God's... I'm sorry? This is the New Jerusalem. God will set God's tent among God's people. There will be no more crying, no more weeping, no more death. The sea, remember what I said about the ocean? The sea will be no more. For I'm about to do a new thing. new heaven and a new earth. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, and remember, he's not the same John who wrote John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, is picking up on the imagery in in Isaiah 65, 17, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And in, in Revelation 21, it's even, it's even more beautiful. It says, I will make all things new. All things all things will be made new. And when it says all things, it means everything that ever was. You and me and rocks and trees and flowers and fish and your little dog Rex that you had when you were eight years old and your cat and, your, and that, that, that uh, goldfish you brought home from the pet store for your daughter and it died before you got it home. <laughs> all, all things will be made new. That's, now that's a promise that I literally don't understand or comprehend except that somewhere in the depths of my heart, it feels and sounds like the God that we worship. That, that no matter what happens in the end of all ends, in the final end of all ends, God will make all things new. Tony, Cam- I think I've told this story since I've been here, so forgive me if you've heard it, but Tony Campolo, the great Baptist preacher, got a call late one night from a woman whose son had died um, uh, due to complications with HIV AIDS. <clears throat> she had heard in her church that somebody like her son was going to go to hell. And she'd heard Tony preach somewhere else a message that she thought might have been different, and she was right, it was different. Somehow she got his number, called him in the middle of the night, said, Pastor Tony, I'm so sorry to bother you, but I, I, I need to understand your concept of time. <laughs> when Tony tells his story, it's hilarious because he's like, lady, it's two o'clock in the morning. Here, here's, my, here's my concept of time. I'm really tired and uh, what do you want? But he could tell in her voice something was going on and she told him the story about her son and, and all of that. And she said, I, I'm just so worried that, that if my son, my son died yesterday, my pastor says he's going to go to hell. If, if, if time in, in eternity is the way it is now, then I then I, I almost want to die now so I can advocate for my boy. Now, now just pause there for a moment. Listen to the power of that story. Who, who, who do you want to follow theologically? 
a mother who's willing to go to, to hell to find her son, or some preacher who says, oh, if you're HIV positive and you're, you live the, you're LGBTQ, you're going to burn and fry forever. I'm going to follow that mom. I don't know about you. I'm going to follow her. Tony's answer was great. He said, he, said he, he believes that, you know, our concept of time, um, I don't think he uses the exact words, this is sort of my interpretation, is a false construct. I mean, for example, when you, it won't, probably won't be that dark in 15 minutes, but once it gets dark tonight, go out and look at the stars. What are you looking at? Say again. Heaven. Heaven, yeah. What are you looking at? What else? When you look at the star. Say it. The past. Now, just... I went to seminary. I don't understand that stuff. But when we look at the stars, you're looking at ancient history. Ancient, ancient, ancient history. When you look at the sun, don't look at it very long tomorrow, but when you look at the sun, what are you looking at? It's eight minutes old, right? Scientists in the room, is that right? Does it take eight minutes for the light of the sun to get to earth? That's, that's the path. If the sun explodes tomorrow at noon Eastern time, it'll be eight minutes before we know. Um, I don't know, somebody's probably looking at it with the telescope and they'll know first, but the, the, just the whole idea. Tony's answer was, look, we've, we've found a way to, to measure our sense of time, but it's based on this one little planet that spins around at this rate, that goes around the sun at this rate, and that's how we determine time. He said, and I've always loved this, that he believes that, that, that although death happens when our time stretch out, stretch out and spread out over this, this in a linear sense, he believes that all of us in the moment of our death will be united together and with God. And that in, in, within God's time, that's when um, the life that is to come will occur. And he said, so therefore I believe when your life is over, you will be reunited with your son and you will be able to advocate for your son. And by the way, the God I love and believe in is going to receive and love your son as much as you do. Which is, by the way, it's another one of my theological constructs. Um, uh, great story. Uh, Dick Wing used to tell this story all the time about the little, little, little boy running home, running home to mom, stumbles and falls and, and, and bangs his hand on the, on the sidewalk and cuts open his hand and mom comes, what does mom come running out and do? You're a terrible person. I'm going to punish you because you cut your hand. What's, what's a mom going to do? She's going to bandage his hand. She might give him a lecture later, but she's going to bandage his hand. Well, you, I think we can be assured that God is at least as nice as we are. Um, at, least, at least that nice. That, that's, that's what's really going on here in Isaiah 65. It's what's going on in Revelation um, 21. Okay. Next slide, which is from Matthew. 5, 17, and 20. I'm going to read through these quick there, Stuart. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, I'm in Matthew 5, 17, and 20. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, excuse me, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does anybody know the, again, there's a variety of views but the prevailing view in Jesus' day in Palestine of heaven, where was heaven? My hands are a clue. Heaven started around here. And that, that heaven was that place where the birds lived. And heaven was that place that kind of went from here on up. Um, by the way, remember, at least in Genesis 1 and in... in Five, 500 or so years before Jesus, the belief was that the earth was covered with a hard shell. That whole area from here up, that was actually the, the heaven. So where's heaven? Where's the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' day? It's right here. It's everywhere. Jesus even says at one point, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, there, there are other texts that, that make similar, similar points. Luke 17, uh, 20 and 21 uh, says that the kingdom of God is in your midst. In the Lord's Prayer, let's say it together. I'll tell you when to stop. Say it together with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Stop. Where is God's will going to be done? On earth. That's what we're praying for. That the way it is in heaven is the way it's going to be on earth. Jesus says several times, the kingdom of God is, about, is around you. The kingdom of God is here. Um, the texts in Oh, oh, think about this one, Matthew 19, uh, 23 and 24. Matthew 19, 23 and 24, another slide I don't have. Um, what, what does it say? What does it say? It's the, it's the story of a rich man trying to get into heaven. It'll be easier for a camel to crawl through what? The eye of a needle. When I was growing up, our Sunday school teachers used to tell us that there was this little gate in Jerusalem that was about this high, and it was called the Needle Gate, and a, and a camel would have to get on its, on its knees and climb through that, that gate, and that's, that's what Jesus was referencing. Um, does that sound very funny? No, Jesus is making a joke. He's talking about a needle, a little needle that you'll use to, to fix your... To fix your um, Fix your fishing net or, or your, your, your garments or, or whatever it is. That's what he's talking about. And he says it's easier for a camel to get through that little teeny tiny needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Now here's again a place where, by the way, why do we come up with that silly idea that there was some gate that was small that a camel had to crawl on? Why do we come up with that? To make it easier. Who said that? Uh, a plus. It's exactly, it's exactly right. Because we don't want it. Because here's the thing. How many of you are Americans? Or how many of you are North Americans, okay? If you live in the United States of America and you have a job and you have a place to live, you're in the top 10% of the wealthy in the world. So this text ought to scare the out of us. And I'm, I'm talking about myself too. I'm not pointing my finger and shaking at, at you all. Um, what's Jesus getting at? Is he talking about eternal life? No. He's talking about experiencing this heaven that's right here. That's already here. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Then you, if you read through, we're not going to take the time to read through all these. But there's a, there's a bunch more, more texts if I wrote them down. Matthew 13 is the parables of the kingdom. Uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. And if you know that treasure is there, what are you going to do? You're going to do everything you can to look around and find that, find that treasure. If you, if you know it's somewhere on this parking lot, well, you're going to get your jackhammer out and it's a million dollars. You can do everything you can to, to, find that, to find that million dollars. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. To see the parables and the metaphors that he's using over and over and over again, it's not about who gets to go to heaven in the end. Who gets to go to be with God and in, in, in in, with all the other good people? It's all, uh, all, it's all, it's already here. Matthew eighteen three. Then, if you become like children, then you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I've, I've started incorporating. Um, this is my baby. <laughs> They'll call this a baby. I've started incorporating whenever I do um, infant baptisms. I used to do this in, in Kansas City. We did um, both infant baptisms and infant dedications, depending on what the family wanted. I would take the baby, and I would walk down the center aisle. And I would, I would quote from Matthew 18. The disciples have been having an argument, and they're all caught up in a bunch of stuff, and there's somebody making noise, and the, the disciples say, send the baby away, send the kids away. And Jesus says, no, bring the baby to me. And he holds the baby out and says, unless you become like this child, as dependent on God as this child is on, on her mother and father, on his mother and father, unless you become like that, that dependent on God and God's ways, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's not putting up a wall. He's not putting up a barrier. What is he saying? The kingdom of heaven is right there. It's, it's, it's in this baby, for God's sake, meant in the best possible way of using that phrase. It's, it's in this baby. It's in this new life that's, that's right, right in front of us. Heaven is the here and now. Uh, God will take care of us once we die. That part I'm, I'm sure of. All right, now we get an interesting, uh, the, to kind of make my point even, even more so, John 21, 20 through 23. <clears throat> Peter turned. This is after the resurrection's over. Peter has had his little confrontation with Jesus, or Jesus has had his little confrontation with, with Jesus. Remember that um, Peter had denied Jesus three times, you know, on the night of the, before the crucifixion. Then he sees Jesus again, and Jesus says to Peter, after the resurrection, by the Sea of Galilee, uh, those of us who went on the Holy Land trip, we were at that spot. It's just, I uh, get goosebumps thinking about, it actually could have been really where this conversation took place. Um, 
Jesus says to Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? Well, of course you know I love you. I love you. Peter, do you really, are you really, you really love me? Of course, three times. Three times he denied him, three times he's asked. Then it's like this amazing moment. This is great. Wow, it's me. This is reconciliation. This is forgiveness. This is a grace being spoken. This is a new life being created. All that between their relationships has been healed. All that. But Peter's still so dense. <laughs> Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That probably is John, the author of the gospel. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Now leave that there. Do you, do you see what Peter's doing? You might miss it because it's kind of an esoteric point. Do you see what Peter's doing? He's saying, okay, good. Now I'm in. Uh, you love me. I love you three times. It's all good. The relationship's been healed. Um, uh, what about, uh, what about, um, what about, uh, what about Pam? Is she in too? <laughs> I think I'm Pam. Never sit on my far left. Uh, um, uh, is, is she, does she get to go too? You see what Peter's doing? Peter's, Peter's trying, again, trying to turn it into a big thing about who's in and who's out. I'm in. I'm glad I'm in. This is great. What about, Fred Craddock says, that oftentimes the church gets formed in a frenzy of gracious welcome. And then the board meets, and the first thing we decide to do is put up a screen door so we can screen who comes in. Uh, because we've got grace, and we'll, we'll let you know whether or not you're worthy of grace. That's what Peter's doing here. He's, he's decided, oh, we're gonna, we, we need to take a vote on Pam. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? Did you see what he said? If it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Uh, and, then, and then the next slide, you can put that one up there, Stuart, but I'm not, not going to respond to it. it. It cracks me up how often people get so worried um, about who's in and who's out and who doesn't get, get, get included. Okay, Luke 23, 43, I think it is. Yes. Last slide. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When you see the word paradise, in, uh, especially in the New Testament, it, by the way, this is referencing Jesus with the um, uh, criminal on, the, on one of the crosses, being crucified with him. Um, when you see the word paradise, it's a reference to garden. It's a reference back to Genesis chapter 1 and the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2 and the garden and how they could eat from all the trees of the garden and all the rest. It also connects us to, Gen to Revelation 21 where there's another promise that there will be in the new heaven and earth, there will be a garden. And just like there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil in, in the um, Garden of Eden, there will be in the new garden, in the new Jerusalem, the tree of life. And so it's really um, beautiful the way um, John has made this connection from Genesis to his book and the way the biblical, um, uh, 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 the theologians who put together the Bible um, uh, put Revelation at the end because you really get from beginning to end. Here you go. The tree uh, that's in the garden, now the tree of new life. And the, the description that he gives of heaven is this gigantic, huge city. And it has walls on all four sides, but the gates are never closed. The, the gates are never closed. That's the new heaven, is the gates are never closed. It does say, if you read through Revelation 21 tonight, you might come back next week and say, oh wait, but it says none of the sinners will be allowed in. It does say that. Um, anyone who's here who has never sinned, raise your hand. <laughs> I guess none of us are going to heaven. Is that what that means? No, it's metaphorical in that point. What it's, meaning, what it's getting at is, look at the beauty of this city. This is an open invitation to anyone and to everyone to make their way through the open gate. All right, that's 57 minutes. I only left three minutes for questions, but I'd, 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 love, uh, I'd love any Q&A you may, any questions you may have for, for me on this evening as we've done this very quick run-through of what the Bible says about heaven and hell. Uh, one here and then and Steve, please. Not ours to really figure out. 
Sure, that's a, that's a great question though. She's asking about uh, what do we do with Osama bin Laden and Hitler and uh, we could throw in Pol Pot and other uh, evil persons throughout, or people at least behaved in, incredibly evil uh, through, throughout history. Uh, well, that's all the time we have, so we've got to go now. Um, <coughs> um, as you implied, um, I, I put my money on God's love. I believe that God's love is greater than all the evil the world has ever seen. What does that mean about Hitler? To even try to answer that, first of all, in two minutes would be crazy. But it's, it's, the, t it's the question to put on the table. It's the question to wrestle with. Um, do you know the story of Elie Wiesel, who was in the Holocaust, who was in prison? And, and it's come to a point where there are, I think, three or four people who are being hanged. And one of them is a, is a I don't know, 13-year-old boy. Do you all know this story? <clears throat> three of them die instantly, but the, the, the boy kicks and squirms and lives. And, and somebody next to Wiesel says, where's God now? And his answer was, do you remember his answer? That's God on the gallows. Um, that's a, uh, I've told that story in sermons before. It's a really hard story to tell. It's kind of a Good Friday story. But it's one of those stories that I, uh, that I think helps us to begin to think about, okay, where is God in this moment? Where is God in, the, in what's happening there? And what happens to these evil persons? Um, a, a, a friend of mine in seminary used to describe it. He's Greek Orthodox now. Used to describe um, heaven as a refining fire. That that refining fire will burn away. That this is part of the eternal torment idea, but it's not really eternal, or at least a fire idea. It'll, that re, it'll burn away all that stuff, and, and all that will be left will be the, the, the essence of who we are in God's creation. Um, maybe that's a way to think about Hitler. Maybe there's not much left. I, I, I'm not trying to. I, that's a really hard question to answer, but that's a, it's a really good one. Um, who, Steve. So, so thank, thank you. Did y'all hear this question? If all means all, what does that mean for the, about other religions? This is for Christians, et cetera, understanding. First of all, yes. Um, it does help if you got an extra 50 grand, go to seminary and take some classes. Um, or I should write a book and sell you a copy of my book is what I should do. Uh, buy Adam Hamilton's book. He'll help you out with, with, with that. Um, here's a great story. For, I think it's from, is it Annie Dillard? Help me, Julie. You know the story I'm thinking of? Um, the guy who goes to the um, Native Americans in, in uh, Alaska. I think it's, I think it's Annie Dillard's story. Um, so this, this like, it, turn of the century, late 1800s, this missionary goes to uh, um, uh, preach to the Native Americans in the Alaska area and, and uh, preaches for several weeks. And then, you know, it's got a crowd like this and then an altar call is given and nobody comes. You know, come give your heart to Jesus. They've never heard anything of Jesus before. Come give your heart to Jesus. And the holy man of the, of the village, he comes forward. And he says, um, uh, why have you come? I've come so that you can meet Jesus, so that you can live in eternal love with him forever. Um, that's wonderful. What would have happened if you had never come? And the missionary says, well, God wouldn't punish you for uh, not knowing about Jesus. You would be with God forever after you died. And the missionary, uh, and the holy man says what? Then why did you come? Then, then why did you, if, if ignorance gets me in, I'm, I'm going to choose ignorance. Um, so I think that's part of the answer is, is we some, sometimes think that, and this is the direct answer to your question, but I think I'm kind of getting there. We sometimes think that it's all about, you know, our religion and how to be, you know, all, all that stuff. I think Jesus, I think, Je frankly, I think Jesus was nothing more than a, nothing more. Uh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> this is one of those, oh my goodness, we're alive. I think Jesus was, in many ways, a, a reformer of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew through and through. 
And, and I think what a lot of what he was trying to do was help his people pay attention to what they're doing. In fact, um, what's her name? Amy Jill Levine, who's an agnostic Jewish New Testament scholar. An interesting combination. An agnostic Jewish, Jewish feminist New Testament scholar. She's brilliant. She says one of the things we miss is we fail to interpret Jesus as a Jew. Um, so I, I don't really think Jesus is coming to try to separate who's in and all, all that out, but, but uh, to help people see, here's what matters. I mean, Matthew 25 is so clear, and it fits in so well with Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. Um, and, and then I think it's important for, it's imperative for us also, well, another little piece here. You're right, you wouldn't know this without Bible teachers, but the Bible itself is full of influences of other religions. Like a third, a third, I don't know, 20... 25% of the book of Proverbs is from Egyptian wise, wise men. And we just, uh, we, um, the Jewish wise people of the day, picked up all those Proverbs from Egypt and went, these are ours now, thank you very much. Um, you know, Jesus may have traveled around, uh, may have gone to India, may have been influenced by uh, folks in India. There's all kinds of hints in Paul um, that he was influenced by Zoroastrianism. So, um, and I did say that out loud and you can send me an email. Um, there's just tons of stuff like that that's just really fun to discover that's actually in the Bible. It's more, it's a broader book than we give it uh, credit for. I hope that helps. Um, it's uh, 804. I got one more question. If there was one more, I saw a couple other hands going up. Way in the back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Sorry. Um, you could go, uh, you know, if you want to know my concept of heaven and hell, uh, re go rent the movie Places in the Heart with Sally Field. Have you seen it? If you haven't seen it, rent it and wait till the end when the killer is there and the other people are there, the good and the bad and everybody's come back and they're all serving the Lord's Supper together. There's an image of heaven I could put my name behind. All right, let's stand up and have a prayer. Thank you for staying late. We went long. I'm sorry. <clears throat> God, we're grateful for the way your word can open our minds. We're grateful for this book and for the scholars and theologians and authors and writers and preachers and teachers and rabbis and others have contributed to it over the centuries. Continue to speak to us in whatever way is necessary, whether through this Bible, through the voice of the person we're standing next to, the words of a friend from long ago, even from our own hopes and dreams. God, speak to us in whatever voice that we will listen. In Christ's name, amen. Night, everybody.